Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You guys doing all right? Everybody doing good? Okay, <laughs> good. So uh, this summer, uh, right, we're taking a break from our normal, uh, the way we normally handle sermons here, uh, where we typically work our way just through a book of the Bible, put that on pause, we'll come back to the second half of Book of Revelation uh, as we move into September. And for the summer, we're taking a little break from that, and we're looking at uh, different sermon series, looking at particular issues and questions uh, that people often have in relation to the Bible, or to Christianity, or to Jesus Christ himself. We're looking in, uh, more specifically at, at difficult questions, hard questions that oftentimes serve as barriers, right, or hindrances to people entrusting their lives in faith uh, to this Jesus. And, and so we thought, well, hey, uh, maybe in light of uh, recent events, actions, you know, that, that have occurred, hey, maybe it could be a good time to take one of these sermons and just talk about this issue of abortion, right? And more specifically, to think, you know, talk about you know how we think about this, and but even more how we, you know, approach the outside world, right? Because we all know that not only is this what everybody's talking about these days, but that conversation is very charged and very animated, right? If you look at the polls on either side of the conversation or debate, you got you know great celebration on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have a lot of fear and concern and anger. Right, and so navigating that and having conversations about that uh, is is challenging at times. But I'm sure if you're on social media, you're seeing all sorts of stuff there. Maybe at conversations at workplace or even around the family dinner table, I would imagine uh, there's conversations that take place. And so we thought, well, let's talk about this issue. Take one of these Sundays, and you know, the goal with all of these questions and issues over the summer. Uh, our intention was always, hey, let's make sure we have a safe place here at Grace Church where people can feel free to ask hard questions and not be judged or ridiculed, but rather receive thoughtful, careful uh, answers, right? But then, too, 
uh, you know, how can we be more equipped ourselves to be faithful ambassadors of Christ who are fluent in kind of these conversations that take place and know how to, you know, talk about this stuff. So that's sort of our goal this morning. Uh, my goal as we talk about this issue really is twofold. It's to, in some way, explain from Luke 10 this morning why it is. Typically, uh, Christians are kind of passionate about this business of life and this whole pro-life uh, movement. Uh, but again, I also want to think, okay, talk about how we take our positions and our stances or whatever and move that out in a Christ-honoring way into the, the surrounding culture. Okay? So that's where we're going this morning. And I should uh, remind you as well, too, that this is, uh, there's a follow-up tonight at 6.30. Uh, you're getting my take on all this from the Word. Uh, but tonight, if you'd like to come and ask questions or to uh, follow up and go deeper from the sermon. Uh, we're going to do that tonight at 6.30, just a casual roundtable discussion for whoever would like to be here. Okay? All right, so let's talk about it. And, and the first thing I'm going to say right off the bat is that talking about this, especially in sermon form, I'm finding is it, it's a little bit challenging, uh, partly because it was maybe a mistake to have an extra week of preparation there, right? When Dave Allen came and, and preached last week, I had two two whole weeks to think about this and read stuff and read various perspectives, and so my head just got full of just a whole bunch of things to consider and to talk about, and narrowing that down to uh, a respectable sermon time uh, was a little difficult. That's one reason. Uh, another reason it's difficult is, look, we have to be honest and, and say, you know, first of all, that, well... <laughs> Part of the challenge is the Bible doesn't address the specific issue of abortion head on. It just doesn't. And that's not because there wasn't abortion taking place back in the ancient world. It certainly was in Roman times. In fact, if you read um, the writings of ancient church fathers, ancient church pastors and church leaders, right, they were talking about abortion and they were explaining why uh, it was not right for their followers and for the church to be engaged in uh, terminating pregnancies and, and all of that, right? But in terms of the Bible, no specific head-on mention of the business of abortion, right? So that makes it a little bit challenging. The Bible does have uh, things to say about unborn life, right? But even there, it gets a little bit tricky. Like on the one hand, you have... Rich poetic passages like Psalm 139, which talk, which David talks about, you know, God knitting me together in my mother's womb and how I am fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, even in the earliest stages in the womb. You know, but then on the other hand, you have passages uh, in the law, like in the book of Exodus, where uh, the violent death of an unborn child is not treated the same as the death of a born child. Right? If you, someone strikes a woman kills her, uh, he's liable to capital punishment. And that's, you know, the blood for blood. Uh, but if a man strikes a pregnant woman and the woman doesn't die, but the baby dies, well, in that instance, you it's eye for eye, whatever damage you've done to the woman. And with regards to the baby, uh, there's just a monetary price to pay, whichever is decided by the husband or the local judicial officials, right? So there's some different perspectives on life in the womb, which makes the conversation just a little bit difficult. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but then lastly, perhaps part of the main reason why talking about abortion and pro-life issues is challenging for me, at least me per personally, is it's often very convicting and very challenging. 
right? And I would imagine for us together as a church, anytime we talk about the business of what it means to be pro-life the way Jesus was pro-life, uh, that often comes with a hefty sense of conviction and a hefty sense of challenge. Which is to say that if you're here this morning just hoping to get some ammunition to go out and better fight the culture wars that are raging all around you, or if you're here this morning just trying to find some reinforcements of how you can stand firm in all the political attacks that are coming your way on social media or whatever, you might get some of that. Uh, but uh, I'm expecting, that, I'm hoping that you're going to feel some of the conviction that I feel and some of the challenge that I feel anytime I stop and think about, or certainly preach to myself, uh, this business of what it means to be advocates for life the way Jesus himself uh, was pro-life. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at, and we're looking at that through uh, this very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, probably very familiar with the story if you've grown up in the church. So we're going to talk our way through it, and maybe the first thing we want to do is we want to set the context, remind the context of this story uh, this comes in chapter 10, and it was at the end of chapter 9 that we hear that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And he started out now on this journey from Galilee, which is more in the northern regions of Israel, down to Jerusalem. And one of the unique things about the book of Luke, instead, as opposed to all the other gospel writers, is that Luke slows this journey down for us. He takes a full 10 chapters to just... Have us walk alongside Jesus and follow Jesus as he's en route from the Galilee down into Jerusalem. And we, we hear you know, some of the interactions and conversations that Jesus has. We see him going to dinner parties or going into people's homes and talking about what it means to follow him. Okay, And so it's on this journey here, kind of early on, uh, that Jesus has this interaction with a young hotshot lawyer. Right? He wants to put Jesus to the test, he says. Jesus had gained a good reputation as a solid teacher, a solid teacher of the law. So this lawyer says, all right, let me put this Jesus to the test. And he stands up and he asks Jesus a question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, ever the skillful debater, uh, he turns, turns the conversation back around by asking a follow-up question to them. He says, well, you're, you're the lawyer. You tell me, what does your law say? And the lawyer says, well, basically my law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great. Go do likewise. Go, you go do that, and you'll live. Which, okay, let's, let's just pause right there for a second. <laughs> like, just consider that much of the conversation so far, right? This, this lawyer, this expert in the Old Testament law, which you know, would have been the second half of the book of, Levit of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and, and most of Deuteronomy, like this sizable portion of the law. You know, this lawyer sums it all up. Say, yeah, here's pretty much what it's all about. You love the Lord your God with everything you got, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then you love your neighbor with as much gusto and much passion and energy as you love yourself. And Jesus essentially affirms that summary of the law. Jesus would essentially say the same thing himself in another passage. He says, so go and do likewise, right? And if you think about that for a second, so, so even right there, like that should be just a clue that the Bible operates from a totally different worldview, where the Bible operates from a totally different ethic than, you know, modern Western American culture. 
right? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? So the biblical worldview, the biblical ethic is, it starts from this place of you love God with everything that you have, all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and all that that means. And then you love your neighbor, again, with just as much passion and energy as you love yourself. Versus the modern Western American ethic, which says, okay, first and foremost, the most important thing is that you need to know yourself. And once you know yourself and who you are, then the name of the game is to live authentically as yourself. And you live in full-on pursuit of who you are and your passions and your dreams and your orientations and everything like that, right? And that's first and foremost. Or first and foremost, you make sure that you are loving yourself with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and strength. And then look, if it serves your life and your goals and your dreams and your passion to love and to trust and have faith in some God, great, go ahead and do that. And certainly, because we are social creatures, it is good for us to be in relationships with other people along that journey of life. But look, those relationships, they're always secondary, right? And first and foremost, you need to know yourself and live authentically as yourself, and you don't conform and you don't submit yourself to any external principles, goals, whatever. Okay, That's just a totally different ethic than the biblical ethic. It's a totally different starting point, a totally different worldview than the biblical world. We could almost just stop the sermons here and say, why, why are Christians, uh, in theory, <laughs> not endorsers of the indiscriminate termination of life simply in the name of choice or liberty or whatever? It's because fundamentally we, we start from a different worldview and a different ethic. My life is always called, first and foremost, to conform and submit to a whole life love of my creator and then this passionate love for my neighbor as much as myself. Okay? Uh, but the attorney asked another question, so we're going to follow his question. <laughs> and he says, okay, uh, great, uh, but remind me again, who exactly is my neighbor? And what's telling is the text says that he asked this question to justify himself meaning to make sure that he's in the right. Meaning it's probably the case where the attorney's thinking back and saying, yeah, okay, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've loved my neighbor as myself. Okay, but he's probably thinking just like anybody else was. But, you know, I, I've had somewhat of a selective neighborhood, if you will. Uh, you know, I consider my neighbors to be, you know, my flesh and blood, to me, my, my kinsmen, you know, people part of my tribe or whatever. But then there's definitely people that I don't consider to be part of my neighborhood as well either. So, so Jesus, again, just make sure here, let me justify myself, make sure I'm in the right. Who exactly is my neighbor again? And we'll come back to that question, tuck that away. But Jesus, his response is, well, let me tell you a story. He starts to tell this story of a guy who's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, a notoriously treacherous road. This is going through canyon territory, and it's going through outlaw territory, right? That's not overly policed by law enforcement. This is where your outlaws go, and they hide away in the caves and the canyons and whatever. And so if you're going down this road, certainly by yourself, uh, that can be a little risky, a little bit dangerous. And so sure enough, this gentleman's going down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Some bandits come upon him, rush on him, beat him, strip him down, take his money, leave him half dead. 
think I've mentioned before when we've looked at this passage, this was, this was a favorite of young boys in VBS, you know. So I have fond memories of this, of this passage because they would always have, you know, times during VBS where they would have contests where you would group up in teams and you would act out, right, a certain skit from a passage of the Bible, right? And all the boys, all the guys, you know, they would group up in their little teams, always wanted to, to act out this scene, right? And so I have fond memories of just having this big wrestling beatdown session on the stage of my church growing up. That would be two-thirds of the skit, and the other third of the skit would be all the other stuff that would be going on, right? So anyway, I always think finally it's probably why I come back to this passage over and over, making amends for how I brutal, whatever. But so anyway, this guy goes down the road, he gets beat up, he's left for dead, and then now the story turns almost like into a bad joke, where you get a, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. They walk down the side of the road. And actually the text tells us some... Uh, some common things about all these. Uh, the, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all came, the text says. They all saw, and then they all acted. The priest and the Levite, they come, they see this guy half dead, bleeding out on the side of the road, and they pass by on the other side of the road. Okay. And, right, anyway, and, and again, here's the thing, right? We're, we're typical, or we tend to think, well, man, what a bunch of jerks. But there might have been, I don't know, there, there might have been some reasons why they just passed by. First and foremost, it could be, well, here's a freshly beaten body along the side of the road. Whoever did this is probably not too far off. So for me to stop and to check on this guy and if he needs help to bind up his wounds or for me to stop and to get off of my horse and put this guy on my horse so I can take him into town or wherever he needs to go, that puts myself at risk you know, from whoever might be lurking or not too far off. Uh, another reason could be that just socially you didn't do this sort of thing back then. I know that's strange for us to think about, but in the ancient world, that culture was very socially stratified, meaning you had your upper class, your middle class, your lower class, your peasant classes, and a couple classes in between. And the name of the game was you didn't interact outside of your social class. That was just part of the social rule. So it actually could, in a weird, perverse way, sort of be virtuous for this priest who would have been in the upper class, the elite, actually to not stop and to not interact, to mingle with this individual from a lower, lesser class. It certainly would have been considered virtuous among his other social elitists or, what, you know, whatever. So that could be a reason. But maybe even another simple reason could just simply be that if by chance this dude is dead alongside the road, and if I go and I interact with him and I touch him in any way, well, now according to the law as a priest, before I continue any priestly duties, i got to go back up to Jerusalem, and i got to go through a week-long purification ceremony before I can go back down to Jericho, perhaps to my family, or continue my responsibilities in the church, you know, whatever it is. All to say... There might be several. Levite, same thing. Levite's a worker in the temple. Levite, maybe, he's walking behind and he sees the priest up ahead and the priest doesn't stop. And so Levite thinks, well, if the priest didn't stop, I certainly can't stop. Who knows? There could be a whole variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, this guy is left, overlooked, uncared for, relegated to the other side of the road while these other guys pass by. And then comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is certainly an interesting choice of characters for Jesus to pick at this point. Right? Because, you know, the people that Jesus is interacting with, his Jewish brothers and sisters, they were not on good terms with the Samaritans. 
Right? There's bad blood. There's hostility going back generations between Jewish people and Samaritan people. Some of that might go back to the days of the exile. Samaritans might have some of their lineage in, you know, uh, when Assyria came into Israel and kind of took over the northern part of Israel. Uh, some of the people that were left behind, some of the Jewish people left behind might have intermarried with the Assyrians, and so they're half Jewish, half Assyrian. Uh, but even more, they took on different religious customs and religious practices, and so there was just bad blood. I was asking Bob about this uh, this morning when we were when we were over in Israel. Uh, we we came to one. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a Samaritan village that we were looking down on, and our guide was telling us about his son, who both worked in the Israeli military, but was also uh, was he a doctor? He had a medical something, a medical training, and so at one point. Uh, somebody, something happened to one of the townspeople down in the Samaritan village, and they knew that um, our guard's son was positioned somewhere nearby, and so they went to get him to come and to care for this Samaritan, but they had to dress him up in Samaritan garb because it wouldn't have gone well for him as this isolated, single Israeli individual to go into a Samaritan village because there's still, to this day, this bad blood that exists between these two. All to say that the Samaritan, essentially on enemy status with this guy bleeding out along the side of the road. Okay, but the difference is that the Samaritan came, the Samaritan saw, and in the text we're told the Samaritan was moved with compassion. And because the Samaritan was moved with compassion, he crossed the road and went to the guy bleeding out on the other side. And then pretty much the rest of the story is the Samaritan giving and sacrificing in compassion for this guy, right? Again, for him to stop, to get off of his horse in this treacherous stretch uh, is, is a little bit risky. He gets off, he takes some of his wine, and he takes some of his oil, some of this relatively expensive stuff for an ordinary person. And he uses it to bind up, to bandage, or to disinfect uh, and anoint the wounds, right? And then he puts the guy on his animal, and he goes into a a Jewish town, which would have been risky for a Samaritan to do, right? A Samaritan to walk into a Jewish town with a beat-up Israelite on the back of your horse, right? That might not go so well for you either, right? He goes to the innkeeper, says, hey, look, here's two denarii, which would have been a full day's wage for the guy, and then he says to him, basically, and then here's my credit card as well, too. Look, you do whatever it takes to make this guy well, to patch him up, and you charge it to my account, I'll pay it in full next time I come back. Right? And this is the story. And so then Jesus asks to, turns to the lawyer, and he says, okay, so you tell me, which one acted like a neighbor? Which of these three was a neighbor to the one in need? The lawyer says, the guy that showed mercy. And Jesus says, there you go. So go and do likewise. Right? I don't know if you picked it up there, but it's interesting. Jesus, he doesn't actually answer the question. Did you pick it up? He doesn't actually answer the specific question that the attorney was asking, the lawyer. Right? The lawyer, seeking to justify himself, asked the question, yeah, and who exactly is my neighbor? Who exactly is the one that I'm covenantally bound to care for and to love with all, you know, love as myself and all that? It's like Jesus doesn't even... Indulge that question. 
He doesn't even dignify that question with a response. He just simply says, no, let me tell you a story about what it means to be one of my followers or what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? You look, you look out for and you care for and you spend yourself for those who are weak and wounded, those who are vulnerable, to those who are neglected or marginalized or relegated to the other side of the road, to those who are outsiders, to those who perhaps have enemy status, right? I'm not even going to dignify this question of who is my neighbor. Here's what it means to be a neighbor. You look after those who are in need. And out of this abundance of compassion, you show mercy, right? Which is why, or let me put it this way. Like sometimes when I, when I hear the conversation that takes place or the debates that take place about abortion in, in the broader world, it often sounds like the question the, the lawyer is asking, right? For so long there, the, you know, the debate that was, well, when does, when does a fetus officially become a, a human being, right? We don't ask that question so much anymore because with the advance of ultrasounds and medical technology, there seems to be a pretty broad consensus that that is a human being growing in the womb. But then the question changed. Well, when does that human being actually become a human person? Right? Meaning that, well, well, it's still undeveloped and unformed. The brain is still forming. It probably doesn't have a cognitive sense of itself or its surrounding or the world around it, which is the definition of what we think of a person. So is this actually a human person that has all the rights and privileges Right? And to me, in, in a small way, at least, that sounds like the question the lawyer is asking. Right? Who exactly is my neighbor? Who exactly is it that I am responsible to, to love with as much passion and energy as I love myself? Right? And so I feel like Jesus, in a similar way, you know, as we, our culture, asks these questions of, well, when is it human life and when is it an actual person that, is, that has rights and privileges that I'm responsible? I feel like Jesus wouldn't even dignify that with a response. Rather, Jesus says, would say, wherever you find life, life that is weak and wounded and marginalized and overlooked and vulnerable and considered by everybody else to be unworthy of, my, of bearing the cost, right? My followers are the ones who are to be filled with compassion and to act with mercy. Which is all just simply to say that I think this is part of the reason why followers of Jesus, historically and today, we're just very concerned about life, this unborn life, life at its most vulnerable, life at its most weakest, life often in our broader culture at its most overlooked or devalued. Right? It's followers of Jesus that just can't go there. It's followers of Jesus who look with compassion and mercy even on that life. This is also why if you go back to that broader cultural conversation, the conversation has moved from, well, is this a human being to is this a person to now? We don't even really debate that anymore. But now it's more this issue of, yeah, but it's not the government's place to force a woman or a mother to bear the cost of this child, especially if it's an unwanted pregnancy or an unwanted child. And okay, look, I understand that politically. And I understand that on a broader cultural level. I understand that argument. All we're doing here this morning is saying this is why, though, from a story like this, where cost for a follower of Jesus doesn't entirely factor into the whole conversation. Right? This whole story 
is the story of, of a Samaritan who, if anybody didn't have any responsibility in the story, it would be the Samaritan, this enemy, who then chooses to have compassion no matter what the cost. Right? He takes whatever he has on to help the person in the moment. He takes him, you know, through treacherous territory. He goes to the innkeeper and he says, do whatever it takes to make this guy well. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, charge it to my account. Cost is not a factor here. And, right, this is where the broader context becomes important, right? Remember, where is this story taking place? Jesus is en route from Galilee to Jerusalem. And what's he going to do when he goes? Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to Jerusalem to lay his life down, his whole life down. He's going to surrender his life to suffer death for the most weak and wounded, the most sick, the most half-dead as a result of sin, its curse and its consequences, its guilt, its judgment upon the people they go. Jesus is going to lay his life down, to bear the cost in full for them. Right? And when he's hung up on the cross and people are thrusting spears in his side and spitting on him and twisting crowns of thorns and mocking him, hail, king of the Jews, what's Jesus doing? He's crying out to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's Jesus looking on the crowd that's mocking him and insulting him and thrusting spears in his side and saying to the Father, look, you do whatever it takes. Forgive them, make them right, make them well. Whatever it takes, charge it to my account. I'll pay it in full. This is why, uh, for followers of this Jesus, who were moved by this compassion, sensed their own need of it, cost not so much a part of our language when we're talking about these things. Or this is why Jesus, you know, in just a few verses right before this passage, at the end of chapter 9, when he's got a whole bunch of people jumping in line and starting to follow him down to Jerusalem, he turns around them and says, hey, you all better count the cost. <laughs> right? To be a follower of me... Uh, means you got to deny yourself. I mean, you strap a cross to your back because we have a mission that we're undertaking together, right? Which is all to say, as we bring this to a close, right, to people who might have questions about the Christian worldview and where Christians are coming from on this issue, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint the picture of why for followers of Jesus there is this conviction and this concern for life as it's at its weakest and most vulnerable most overlooked most marginalized or whatever right it's why a Christian feels compelled to take up the cause of the unborn okay but then look having said that now is where it gets to the challenging and convicting part because hopefully Right When we see a passage like this and we see the example of the Good Samaritan, when we see a passage like this and we think of it in a broader context of this Jesus who is going down to Jerusalem and in compassion and mercy is going so that he can lay his life down. Right, Hopefully we come away from this understanding that to be pro-life in the way Jesus is pro-life, man, that means that we are as passionate about that child post-birth as we are leading up to it, that we, that we are, are intent on sacrificing or giving or rallying or praying with as much fervor and passion and energy for that child after it leaves the womb as it is leading up to the womb. 
And if that child doesn't have a home where it's wanted to be or is going to be cared for, it's the church that's making sure with full passion and gusto that we're going to take that child and we're going to care for that child. Right? Or to be pro-life the way Jesus is pro-life means that we are passionately concerned about the mother who is going to bear the cost or who we're asking to bear the cost of raising, of, of giving birth to that child or then who knows whatever else, right? It is the concern of the church to advocate for, to be uh, passionately looking out for those women along the way. In other words, I guess what I'm saying here this morning is I hope that you understand that to be pro-life in the way Jesus is pro-life is only in part, dare I say, minimally concerned with who you vote for in November or who you put into positions of power so that they can make rules and laws to, you know, work this from the top down. Or I hope (laughs) that you certainly understand to be pro-life in the way Jesus is pro-life has little to nothing to do with you going onto social media and taking up the cause of the unborn or defending, you know, the godly, right? That's not what it's about. To be pro-life in the way Jesus is pro-life means... That we are passionate about taking up the cause. We are passionate about bearing the cost. The cost that wasn't ours perhaps initially, but, but, but bearing that cost of all life, especially life that can be overlooked, especially life that can be marginalized, life that is weak and wounded and in need of love and care. And I stress that point partly because... I don't know uh, how good we have been, we have, I say the church, broadly speaking, in America. I don't know how good the church in America has been at taking up the cause of life the way Jesus did in its fullest sense. I don't know how good the church has been about being pro-life in the way Jesus has been pro-life. Or I don't know if the church has the reputation in a broader culture of being pro-life in the way that Jesus was pro-life. You know, partly because I see ways, and I think we can all, uh, you know, understand this, where the church has been complicit in the broader culture of death, right? This broader culture of dehumanizing people, especially people we disagree with or people who might consider enemies or consider people who are outsiders who don't think, look, and act like us. You know, or maybe the church has participated in a broader culture of death when, you know, we haven't been concerned to hear, you know, the plight of women. Or maybe the church has been complicit in the culture of death around us when we've been very slow to listen carefully to the cries of injustice, maybe that come from, you know, racial minorities or ethnic groups or whatever it is. Or maybe just in general the church has been complicit in the culture of death when we have not been open, willing to count the cost, to consider the cost, and to assume the cost of loving in the manner of Christ. But if you ask me, like that, that's the way this tide changes, that somehow in the broader culture, the church is known as a people who are passionately in love with life and are passionately concerned to go out and, and to, uh, to care for and to advocate for life in the fullest sense. Like the, the church needs to be the place that the broader culture looks to as a refuge and as a safe haven for life in its fullest. Church needs to be the place 
where a mother, perhaps, who has this unwanted pregnancy and has, you know, is just stricken with fear about the idea of raising a child, right? The church needs to be the place to say, well, you know what? But even if I can't care for this child, I know there's a, there's a group of people down the road who love children and who would love, no matter what the cost, to take this child and give it a home, give it a family, raise it in love. And so maybe I can partner with them and I can carry the cost of the pregnancy, trusting that they'll be there. I don't know. I don't know if we have that reputation. I don't know if the broader church has that reputation. Or I think of like a single mother. Like you think of like a single mother maybe who, who herself grows up in a somewhat dysfunctional home where there hasn't been a whole lot of support. Maybe it's a single family home that she's growing up and she doesn't have a lot of backing, a lot of support. The only support that she has in life is some deadbeat dude who's showing some, her some mild affection and emotional support. And this guy starts pressuring her for sex, and she's afraid that he's going to walk out, so she has to put out to keep him in the relationship. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. Deadbeat guy bails, skips town, and so she's left with this burden herself, with very little support around her. Goes to a doctor, talks about our options. Maybe even the doctor says, yeah, you know what? Some of that alcohol or illicit drug use that you've been doing to numb some of the pain in life that you've been experiencing. Yeah, some of that has gone into now this fetus and that child is good likelihood. This child is going to be born with certain struggles or dysfunctions or disabilities in life. And yeah, you might really want to consider terminating this pregnancy. What's that woman supposed to do? Or what's that woman going to do? Or, or more, here's the question I'm really asking. You think that woman's going to come to the church? <laughs> If the statistics are any indication that woman is running far away from the church. Maybe because we don't have that reputation of passionately coming and advocating for her. Or maybe because, you know, in the church we've so elevated sexual sin to be a sin that's greater than all the other sins that we all struggle with on a day-in and day basis that this woman who's going to walk into a church bearing the signs of sexual immorality, maybe just think, oh, I'm going to receive this judgment from this group. Right? I feel like I'm rambling a little bit here this morning. Again, this is part of the problem. There's so many thoughts here this morning. And to try to bring this to a close, I just want to say this, that hopefully what comes through from this passage, or maybe I'll say it this way, to ask the, the fundamental question, how do we have conversations with people about abortion and pro-life? Maybe, just just maybe the answer to that question is, We don't. That maybe, just maybe, the answer to that question is we let our actions speak louder than words. And maybe, just maybe, we become so passionate about the business of life and the passion with which Jesus had towards life. And maybe, just maybe, we become, well, maybe, you know, the broader culture, we might get this reputation of so concerned for life that is vulnerable and weak and wounded that the outside culture will look at the church and will just say, yeah, of course, okay, those are the people who are weak, who are concerned about the weak and the vulnerable and the overlooked and the marginalized. And so, yeah, they're probably going to be the people who are concerned about the unborn children. Or, yeah, those are the people who live so sacrificially without abandon that they're probably not ones going to be too inclined to engage with the cost of bearing a child to pregnancy. Yeah, I get it. And maybe, just maybe, we have that reputation without having to even speak a word. Or even better. And here's the point. Maybe the broader culture comes to see Jesus as one who was so passionate about life and life to the full. 
that he was willing to spare no expense and avoid no cost to himself. So, so he would lay down his life. Maybe, just maybe, they would see this Jesus and the people who are following him. And they might be compelled by that and have some desire to know just a little bit more about that without us even saying a word. So that's what I'd be excited about. And that's what we're going to talk more about tonight. How can we do that together? And I would say, you know, as I think about our congregation, as I pray about our congregation and was thinking about this this week, I know this is a congregation full of compassion. I know there are people in our congregation who are passionately concerned about the unborn, passionately concerned about the born. Those who are, who are born into families, who are born into unwanted situations and have no home and have no family. I know we have people in this congregation who are passionate about people, you know, people in life who are just so often overlooked, maybe because they have handicaps or disabilities and they often just don't receive the care or the support. Right? I know we have people who are passionate and compassionate about that. I know we have people in our congregation who are concerned for single mothers. And how can I be a support to single mothers? I know we have people in our congregation who are concerned with women who have been subjects of abuse and abusive behavior. Or I know we have people in our congregation who are concerned about issues of justice and injustice among racial minorities and ethnic communities and whatever. So maybe, I guess what I'm saying, well, and I would say this too, that everybody, I would assume everybody here who has the spirit of the living Christ within you, there is this still small voice that gnaws at you, that fills you with compassion, that has you not just pass by on the other side of the road. And so maybe what I'm saying here is that if you have this longing and you've sensed the spirit nudging you to be a little bit more involved in advocating for life, whether it's the unborn or the unwanted children or whether it's single mothers or whether it's victims of abuse, whatever it is, if the spirit has been nudging you in that, Maybe now's the time more than ever. Let's go get it. Let's go after that. Right? If what we hope takes place on the heels of this decision, if what we hope would happen actually starts to happen, man, there's going to be a whole lot more unwanted children in this world. There's going to be a whole lot more single mothers who are struggling in this world. So now more than ever, the church is called to be pro-life in the fullest sense. And so if you have that conviction, if you have that nudging of the spirit, I would say today, let's go get it. Let's go get it together. Let's talk about that tonight. How can we go get that together? How can we do that so that those who are overlooked and who need care receive it and find that love from this community? And how can we go get that so that the broader world looks here and sees, yeah, that's a people who are passionate about life in the fullest sense. I know where they're coming from on this issue. How can we go get that so that the broader world sees this congregation and ultimately sees Jesus and his wild, sacrificial love for our sake and for our redemption. Amen. Okay. And I know where's Sarah. I know Sarah's going to throw something if I leave it at a, after, at a moral imperative. <laughs> but don't remind you that it's the gospel alone that gives you the strength to do this. Right? Being this kind of church, being this kind of people, it doesn't come by sheer strength of will. It only comes by first being enamored with the love of Christ who poured this out on your behalf, who when you were most vulnerable, when you were most sick and wounded by sin and its curse, decided to spare no expense, no cost, laid his life down in full for your redemption. When you see that love, when you humble yourself to see your need of that, that mixed with the indwelling power of the Spirit alone is what motivates and inspires and also empowers you to live sacrificially. We're dead in the water if we don't focus first and foremost on that wild love of Christ. But the prayer is as we go that God's Spirit would 
fixate us on that wild love of Christ, would empower us by his spirit so that we might go out playing our part as followers of Jesus for a world that needs that compassion and a world that needs him. And may he do that in and through us for the advance of his kingdom, the expanse of his church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.